Hey, before we get started, I just want to say that if you like this podcast, if you like what you're hearing, you can go to patreon.com OntarioLoud or ontarioloud.ca and hit that Patreon link. Sign up for anywhere from three to five to more dollars per month. It helps us pay for operating costs, do targeted outreach, new audiences, compensate our volunteers, and do other cool things. So head online, sign up today. Welcome to Ontario Lab, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs, hosted by recovering political and policy staff right here in Ontario. I'm Chris Martin. I'm Garima Talwar Kapoor. I'm Alexi White. And I'm Sam Andre. We've got a great show for you today. We'll be talking about Ontario reopening. We'll be talking about Canada's potential movement to crack down on Serb fraud. Uh, but first, just want to touch quickly on the sea change we are seeing in public sentiment on anti-Black racism and the effectiveness of the protests that we've seen held in the US, Canada, and all of the world. Um, I would just say that they continue to be incredibly impressive. Here at Ontario Lab, we support Black Lives Matter and the protest move in general. We had previously committed to send our June Patreon support uh, to an anti-Black racism cause and uh, do use this money to pay our operating expenses. Uh, but this month, we're going to pay these out of pocket and add our support to Food Share Toronto, who are providing boxes to everyone who sort of reported as being food secure and needing to self-isolate after participating in the Not Another Black Life protest. Uh, I just want to say that this protest, organized by Not Another Black Life, which was organized to draw attention to these suspicious circumstances around around Regis Farchinsky Paquette's death, uh, did a wildly impressive job. Uh, they secured thousands of masks, buses for those with disabilities. Uh, legal and public health advice was distributed widely for all those who attended. And with this food share partnership, their advice to everyone who attended uh, who had symptoms was to self-isolate. Their partnership with food share allows those people to do so without leaving and needing to go to the grocery store. So I just thought some truly amazing example of community organizing in a pandemic uh, and happy to support them in whatever they do. So um, just wanted to, before we dive in, any thoughts on the protests, impacts that the movement has had on your guys' lives so far? So I've been I've been doing just a, a little bit of volunteer research and policy support for a group out of Toronto that's mounting an email campaign to pressure city councillors to support defunding the police. So I encourage uh, everyone who's listening to reach out to your local city councillors and try to drum up support for um, impending motions on that matter at city council. Uh, and through that process, I've, it's just been really interesting to learn a lot more about police funding uh, in Toronto, how it compares to other places. Uh, and you see all kinds of statistics thrown around. And what's interesting is how easy it is to to pick whatever numbers you want in order to uh, make the case that you're trying to make. So uh, if you look, for instance, just at uh, funding levels for the police over the last, say, 10 years in Toronto, there is a very large increase. And then if you start to do things like factor in uh, expansion in the size of the city, factor in things like inflation, those increases start to look a lot smaller. And so some people choose to stop there. And, and you can make an argument that funding for the police hasn't actually increased that much. But then if you also try to do things like factor in decreases in crime rates, for example, then you start to see again questions raised about, are we do we need to spend this much money on the police? So it's just, it's really interesting that there are so many different ways of cutting and slicing this data and so many ways of comparing and who you select as a comparator. If you're selecting other places in Ontario versus selecting places like Montreal and Vancouver, some of the, the stats look different. And so it's just, uh, I guess, a caution to people who are out there thinking about this, that it's uh, it's worth it to, to drill down a little bit and, uh, and learn more about what's going on. And uh, I've also just been interested in seeing some of the polling results coming to the U.S. It looks like there's um, huge support for some of what I would consider to be very minor reforms, uh, which is good. So like, you know, 
banning chokeholds and things like that. Uh, but when when asked about whether they would support defunding the police, you get much, much lower answers across the political spectrum, which is too bad. Uh, and may, I mean, this is a controversial point, but I personally don't like the name defund the police because um, I do think that it creates in a lot of people's minds the sense that, that there would no longer be police uh, when in fact that's not the case. And so um, I do think that finding a, a way to explain this uh, without that slogan might be uh, might be helpful for the, the movement moving forward. I saw a kind of funny tweet today that was, everyone, defund the police. Joe Biden, I hear you. I will put more money in defund for the police. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, my God. Uh, in the context of him <laughs> announcing <laughs> more money. Um, yeah, I've been doing a lot of my own kind of reflection, listening, um, donating, thinking about the work that I do professionally at Ryerson uh, in the context of anti-black racism and white supremacy. I guess one of the initiatives that I wanted to mention that we uh, support at Ryerson have been involved with for a bit is the Coalition for Alternatives to Streaming and Education, also known as CASE. It was sort of born out of a movement in Toronto's black community, uh, though has grown um, and has a steering committee that is made up of um, a bunch of different marginalized communities uh, impacted by systemic racism in our K-12 education system. Many of our listeners have... Um, heard us talk a lot about that system before, given some of our backgrounds, but um, maybe just worth pointing out quickly, in Toronto, 53% of Black students are in academic courses compared to 81% of white students and 80% of other racialized students, so huge disparity. Um, most school boards don't even collect race data to know what these stats are, uh, but we do know that only 3% of those in Ontario that take applied English and math in grade nine make it to university. And so uh, this is a movement to um, look for alternatives to this premature streaming. Ontario is the only province that streams as early as grade nine. And so, yeah, so if anybody is out there listening and thinks that that sounds like a great movement to get involved with. Feel free to uh, reach out to me. We're always looking for more volunteers. I just wanted to jump in there. Sam, I think that's super interesting. More from a personal perspective, as a brown woman of Indian heritage, you know, there's people often sort of comment on the focus on education amongst the South Asian diaspora, but starting to see how different racialized communities are streamed through the school system is important because it, it does lead to some of those longer term outcomes that you're talking about. And, mm. and we've been seeing for decades, unfortunately, these phenomenon aren't, aren't new. And I think that what this moment has really started to unearth is especially amongst other racialized communities is the extent to which anti-black racism does exist in in other racialized communities and and so this isn't to say that people of color don't experience racism it's just um at, at this moment lots of people are calling out um calling out the racism that does exist within their own communities. And I think this is really integral, especially in a community like Toronto, where um, where the idea of multiculturalism and diversity is so rampant, but also in, in people really starting to understand that the ways in which people are treated through various systems and their outcomes differ. And so that it's not a black versus white issue, which is something that I think many, many people have 
thought was the case before. And, you know, this perhaps for many people isn't a new revelation, but I do think in the common discourse, it's becoming something that people are more willing to talk about. Shri Paradkar from the Toronto Star recently wrote an article about this. And it I can just say from my own sort of circle, it it created a lot of debate amongst people, which I think is necessary for us to be able to move forward on the things that uh, we've been talking We've been moving from one seismic change uh, in our politics and our lives to another. Starting today uh, with the top story of the week, uh, which is moving to phase two of Ontario's reopening plan. So this was announced on Monday this week. Um, as of when you're listening to this pod, Friday, June 12th, uh, some areas of the province will be mo- uh, moving to phase two and reopening. The announcement itself from Doug Ford was a little complicated and confusing. So we'll summarize what we're allowed to do. So starting today, everywhere in the province, gathering limits are going to be increasing from 5 to 10, and places of worship are allowed to reopen, providing they are not more than at 30% capacity and distancing standards are observed. There is then a list of specific public health units outside the Greater Toronto and Hamilton area and major urban centers that are allowed to reopen. So this means that outdoor restaurants are allowed, patio time uh, we can start to see uh, in our lives again if you're not in the GTA, Uh, personal care, so barbershops, hair salons, uh, lots of jokes about, you know, People of Toronto driving out of the city to get haircuts as a result of this. Uh, tour services, camping at private campgrounds, weddings and funerals uh, with limits of 10 people and a whole host of other things. Uh, notably, they said that data would be forthcoming on childcare, summer camps, post-secondary education, public transit. Later in the week, they announced that childcare and post-secondary education could reopen, providing that strict procedures that would be provided were observed. Of course, the pandemic is in full swing. This decision seems to be based on data showing that the seven-day moving average of new cases has been moving down across the province and that the GTA and urban areas are responsible for the vast majority of new COVID cases. So just want to say to our listeners, advice is definitely still to distance and avoid crowds and gatherings where you can, wear masks when you can't distance, wash your hands frequently. But it is exciting that things are starting to lift again. So just want to start broad and what did you guys think of the announcement, how it was packaged and what the substance was? So I'll start on this one just because I want to take some pot shots at Ontario, which is really easy to do when you live in BC. And there are 185 active cases across the entire province and 12 people in the hospital. And so, yeah, I'm going to take some pot shots. Ontario has been really bad on the communications. We've talked about that before on this pod. People credited Ford right away for having such a you know a good tone that he struck in his early press conferences. But as the pandemic has moved forward, there's been a need to replace tone with actual substance. And I think he has failed to do that uh, in a lot of ways. Uh, and when confronted with things that he can't explain, like why the testing was ramping up so poorly, uh, he basically just blames other people. Um, so I'm you know not at all surprised that, uh, especially with a system where you have uh, municipalities handling public health and a province unwilling to take charge, um, that there's going to be a lot of communications issues. And uh, hopefully some of these systemic structural problems can be dealt with uh, moving forward uh, when all of this is over. Um, yeah, I would just echo that. I think clearly the honeymoon uh, is over and they are struggling to figure out how to execute this stage two in a coherent way, you know, even just just to pick up on what Alexi was saying about their kind of incoherent explanations, you know, they were pushed this week about why massage 
was going to be allowed, but not haircuts. Uh, and Ford was like, yeah, you're right. I guess that doesn't make sense. Like, does anybody know? And like turns to his ministers and it's like, come on. Like, And so I think the results are bearing themselves out on that. I think in particular, the actions they took this week on childcare were particularly egregious. The giving three days notice to open up childcare centers when centers said for months that they would need more time than that um and that would be that they would be a critical part of the stage two reopening in the sense that all these employees that need to go to work now who work in these stage two businesses need somewhere to send their kids um and to not even include it in the stage two announcement it was one day later i think the whole thing has been super clumsy yeah no i i i would agree with that and i think that like you can clearly see in the that there was pressure in the PC caucus to get moving because there are many parts of the province that aren't seeing huge outbreaks. But of course, to echo, you know, like your points, like I read the post-secondary education announcement. I have no idea what it really means. Like we're allowed to have classes again, but only with some standards that are going to be released later. You know, luckily we're in the summer. So I think the impact is going to be fairly small of the disclarity. But like reading that, I'm not entirely, I'm still not entirely sure what we're allowed to do or not allowed to do, what the standards are. And to bring it up one level to just the public health risk. I mean, so when you look at the data on um, hasmyflattening.ca, which is a really, really good public data project on this, you see after Mother's Day, a big spike back up and then now it's back down to sort of below where it was on Mother's Day. I mean, we're coming up to Father's Day and Father's Day and a reopening. Like I remember most people's expectations on Mother's Day were still pretty chaste in terms of what was allowed and we saw that spike. So, I mean, you know, I do worry about this message of a broader reopening uh, leading to us back to a place we don't want to go and good information compounding that. One of the factors we know is so important in controlling the disease, of course, is contact tracing. And this is the process by which uh, outbreaks are tracked. You follow up with a person who may have contracted the disease, figure out how they got it, who they may have passed it on to. Countries like South Korea have led the way in controlling the disease, applied a really sophisticated approach to contract tracing through use of mobile apps. So um, the idea is that you, your phone can keep a better and more accurate record of who you've been near than you ever could. Um, and so it's a potentially good tool for the work of contact tracing rather than having a person call up and ask you, okay, who have you spent time with? How, who have you passed on the street? Where do you live? Like it just works better. However, data and privacy experts warn that the kind of data that contract tracing apps capture, namely who you've been spending your time with and where you've been is highly sensitive and could be used for all kinds of really terrifying purposes. Um, so it's a uh, potentially a good tool for fighting the pandemic, but it's also a dangerous tool. So uh, Sam, uh, our very own Sam Andrew, has just helped publish a report on this through the Ryerson Leadership Lab. So uh, Sam, I'm wondering, since you are the expert in the room uh, on this uh, really timely topic, if you could tell us a little bit about uh, what you think the Canadian government should be considering and what the right balance between public health and privacy should be. Uh, thanks, Chris, for uh, that shameless plug. Um, and But I do think it's uh, an excellent question, I think really relevant for Ontario, who um, all indications are is actively considering rolling out um, a contact tracing app soon. And I think given, as you sort of mentioned, the Ford government has already uh, shared the personal information of COVID-19 positive uh, cases with the police um, and has frankly still not answered questions about 
uh, the conditions um, under which that information is being shared. I think the concerns about uh, privacy and security are not unfounded and really um, concerning in Ontario. Uh, so uh, as you mentioned, we did a survey a few weeks ago of Canadians and it showed a majority of Canadians would support making these apps mandatory to go to work or to take public transit. Um, and I think those results speak to how Canadians are are maybe ready to accept some sacrifices to their privacy um, to return back to uh, whatever normal we can get. But I do think, you know, privacy doesn't need to be a zero sum option. It can be balanced with public health. And we sort of lay out a bunch of technical uh, recommendations in our report that I won't sort of get into too much here. But uh, basically, um, the app doesn't need to collect location data to be useful. It can use uh, Bluetooth technology that can pick up contacts without collecting sensitive location information. And it also doesn't need to require that the data be uploaded to a server, which is one of the key ways that data can be leaked or misused by, say, law enforcement. You can keep all the contact information on individual devices and just download who is positive um, for uh, COVID-19 using a secure ID, which also is privacy preserving. So these these tools aren't perfect. There would still be privacy and security risks regardless of the design, but there are ways to minimize uh, the risks that we hope um, uh, governments are taking into consideration. And then I think just the last thing I would want to say is even if you build it perfectly, you have to build public trust in these apps um, because people adopting them is what makes them effective. If, if a minority of people are using them, then it's not picking up um, most contacts. And so you know, that can be done through transparently procuring them, independently reviewing them through privacy commissioners or other security experts, enforcement of keeping them voluntary. Um, there's a temptation of some employers or some landlords uh, to make them mandatory, even if people don't have access to smartphones, for example. Um, uh, so that's important uh, and sort of ongoing oversight of the effectiveness of this technology because it's kind of questionable um, given other jurisdictions experience, whether it's even uh, that helpful in uh, the COVID-19 context. Um, so yeah, so if you want to check it out, the report is called The Race to Trace. Uh, but I do think it, it's an opportunity for Canada to sort of set a bar for privacy and security preserving technology if they want to go uh, down this road. And I hope that they do. Groom Alexi, uh, are, you, are, are you convinced by the uh, w would you would you download an app on your phone that potentially gave the government information about who you've talked to and where you've been if it had all that kind of stuff? I mean, that information is already collected by more companies than I can possibly count. <laughs> so I yeah. guess, I mean, I, I don't, I'm definitely in yeah. favor of more privacy. I guess what always baffles me about these conversations is how willing we are to allow corporations who have a history of actually losing our data because of poor cybersecurity practices to collect things about us. And then, you know, it was like last year, a couple of years ago, Stats Canada asks to be able to collect some basic bank records, which banks have and have had leaks of. And suddenly it's, oh my God, the government's going to have this information about me. That just can't possibly happen. Even though the government has a stronger track record of actually being able to keep your data secure. So I just, it feels like we are so willing to trust corporations to manipulate us, to sell things to us. But if, if the government wants to collect data, then that seems to be one step too far. So to me, it just I just don't understand the disconnect in in, in our, our society and our culture around data. Um, so I would just wish there was a level playing playing field about privacy for everyone. Yeah, yeah, I totally I totally agree with that. I guess the only thing I will say, and we should of course trust corporations far less, and there should be better data rules and and regulations around um, what they can and can't do. But I do think like 
state surveillance and state misuse of data, especially by law enforcement, takes on a different level of importance than ads and, uh, you know what I mean, like um, uh, the typical corporate use. Of course, the corporations leak it and then it can be misused by whomever. But I just mean, I, I get why there's a disconnect, if I guess. I would agree with that, and except for examples like Facebook uh, being scraped to uh, create apps that police can use to um, do facial recognition, right? Like, so it's it, it just because it's it, the police are linked to the government doesn't mean that the police are only getting data from the government. Um, and so, I certainly, I feel like so I, I hear you for sure. But like the stats can example, I and mean, there was no there was no um, idea around stats can sharing this information with the, with the police, um, and yet still it created a huge outcry. I just don't understand it. Yeah, I just I agree a hundred percent with what. Alexi was saying, and I think there, this disconnect for me is just so fascinating because when we talk about the government, we talk about it as some like entity that is unknown to all of us. And that's that, that can, that culture can change if we want it to change. And if the government's got our data, it's in essence that we have our own data and, and that the extent to which we use it for public good, I, I, we just have such a weird conversation around around completely mistrusting government institutions. And because we don't actually trust government institutions, as time goes on, um, we further undermine them because we don't actually support them, whether it's through funding them or by by enabling them to have the the scope to do the work that they need to do for the world that we're evolving in. And that's something that we certainly don't do when we scroll through, you know, 10 pages of Apple data checks and clearances. So it's just, it's all fascinating, but I hear you on the state surveillance side, especially in this context when we're talking about who's over-policed and the challenges in ensuring that there is not over-policing of people. It's all complex, but I don't think that means that you just stop um, governments from being able to use the data that they need for good public policy. Yeah, no, I completely agree with that. Um, and I can definitely understand why people are reticent in like this political culture about, you know, particularly when you have this like example of a government to the south of us that uh, definitely at the bar, definitely flirting pretty hard with authoritarianism. But I think the broader point is um, is, is is well taken. Actually, it's also a good segue of mistrust in government to our next topic, which is the proposed crackdown on Serb fraud. So on Monday, uh, the Global Mail reported that the federal government would be introducing a bill that introduced fines and potentially jail time for those who submit fraudulent claims under the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, um, or CERB. I've been calling it CERB the whole time, so if you've been confused. The draft obtained by The Globe suggests that Canadians may be faced with fines up to $5,000, plus double the amount of income support received. The bill also includes potential jail time for offenses such as making false or misleading statements, failing to fully disclose all relevant income. Of course, if you earn anything over $1,000, you're not supposed to claim CERB and receiving an income support payment on behalf of someone who's not eligible. So if you sign up for yourself, but you're actually giving the money to someone else. 
It is not clear as to whether these measures will be retroactive. However, the bill also includes, on top of everything I just mentioned, financial penalties for those who fail to return to work when it is reasonable to do so and employers make a request for their return. These sections would be retroactive. Um, The bill did not extend CERB, which, of course, the CERB benefit is limited to $8,000 per individual or 16 weeks, meaning that many who applied in March are looking at exhausting their benefits fairly soon. In a press conference, Prime Minister Trudeau said that the intent of the bill was to crack down on a minority of criminals who used CERB inappropriately, and that the intent would be not to punish those who just made a mistake on their applications. NDP leader Jagmeet Singh said it was the wrong time to be introducing penalties. This would hurt vulnerable people. The Conservatives didn't say anything about it. So I'm just curious what we think of this move by the government? Is it appropriate? What is the balance that they're trying to strike here? And what do we think it says about their priorities? I've got a lot of thoughts about this. I think that this moment and for the past couple of months um, have been such a critical moment and time for transformation where we really thought or I really thought that this might be the time in which we really change the discourse around why people fall into poverty or may need income support from government. And I think that this move is just so terribly anti-worker and hasn't been, and not enough has gone into sort of, if the government really does think that fraud in CERB is a big problem, they haven't actually made the case to suggest why. We just, it's, I feel like we've got like, collective memory loss on this, but it wasn't that long ago when CERB was implemented. And back then, like, there was nobody actually knew what was happening. Workers were trying to ensure that they could pay their bills. Service Canada and CRA staff were coming up to speed on what on who is eligible, who's not eligible, how to actually facilitate actual payment. And so now this idea that there might be widespread fraud is one thing, but also that that the CERB is somehow preventing people from getting back into work is doesn't actually, and lots of people have talked about, doesn't actually talk about what it is that people need to go back to work. And that includes adequate wages and wages to be able to afford groceries that are becoming increasingly expensive. That includes if you're working in any place that is about service and working with customers or clients, you need PPE to be able to ensure that that your work is safe. You're going to have to change the scheduling of how your work is done so that you don't face issues where you've got too much crowding in in your store or not enough people coming in and not being able to keep your lights on. And so I think that all of this taken together is just 10 steps back from where I thought we were in terms of a national discourse on the supports people need during times of economic or income crisis, whether it's during the pandemic or not. And one last thing that I think is absolutely egregious about all of this is that there's no appeals process. And So unlike EI, CPP, or even social assistance, where if there is a situation in which the government thinks that you're not eligible for the benefits that you have received, there's an appeals process and due process that 
is structured for folks to be able to, or for beneficiaries to be, to be able to make their claim. And that through the draft legislation that I've seen, I haven't seen that appeals process being crafted into the legislation yet. And I think that's deeply problematic. Uh, I mean, that was perfect. Uh, the only, I mean, I, I can share some experience that I think adds a little bit to what I think might be going on here. Um, my guess is that the federal government is not going to be doing a lot of going after people with this law. It feels much more like this is a signaling attempt um, and two different signals. One signaling to people, workers, that it's like, you know, that the government is starting to take a harder line against, I guess, what some people would consider to be largesse, but for very good reasons, as Grima has just outlined, that's bullshit. And a second message to, you know, sort of the center right taxpayer focused folks who are worried about government spending too much money in this area and want to feel like these government programs are really cracking down on what they may perceive as uh, too much uh, ability for people to take advantage of their hard earned taxpayer dollars. Uh, and that second message is one that I totally get from the polling that I've seen. And when, when I was in Ministry of Community services. We had polling of Ontarians looking at uh, fraud, and a lot of Ontarians believe that there is substantial fraud in the social assistance system, much more than there's any evidence for. And uh, it is not, it is it is difficult for governments to to resist the temptation to play into that stereotype when they, when they know that they can prop themselves up from attack by passing a law like this, and then continue to refer to that day after day after day, anytime somebody raises this issue again, right? So the problem is you're trading off short-term political expediency with the the long-term battle that progressive governments need to be fighting to change people's minds about these programs. And if you want, if you're a person who wants to get into a world eventually of things like basic income, you can't have a program like that without a broad amount of trust across society that that the benefits outweigh any sense of people taking advantage of a program like that, right? And that is that is going to probably be the number one political barrier to ever getting to a place like that or even getting to more um, more generous social assistance rates, let alone a full basic income. So we're setting ourselves back every time we have this argument, and uh, it's too bad to see the federal liberals playing into that, to be honest. Yeah, no, I, oh, um, I, I just want to... Uh, build in because I think that uh, in the reporting that I've seen of it, some reports, too few, but some have highlighted that government programs typically have an estimated fraud rate of less than 1%. Mm-hmm. So the actual department that is, so the federal government uh, officials who spoke on this said that because of the nature of the program, how easy it was to get into, they had some officials speaking honestly and say, you know, they had to pass through 200,000 sort of red flag cases that they weren't sure about, but the direction from the politicians was to just get everything through. That is two to 3% of the overall recipient pool. So we're talking about a really small number of people. And so, yeah, I mean, I was really disappointed when I saw Justin Trudeau come out and sort of claim that this was the reason why they were pursuing these. Because the other thing is that Let's say you do really care about this. Let's say you do really, really care about this 2 to 3% of fraud. Fraud is already a crime. Why do we need more specific measures for CERB? You can already be fined. You can have the money taken back. You can go to jail for fraud. The nature of these are, I think, very clearly to serve as a disincentive to folks who are seeing their benefits running out soon and are thinking, okay, like, how do I 
Like, should I try and reapply for CERB, even though my workplace might be opening up? Like, I'm not sure what I want to do. It's, it's, I completely agree with your signaling point, Alexi. And it's just a, it's a big miss on this government's part trying to make some progress on the badly needed area of how income support uh, rolls out to people. I just maybe, sorry, you'll have to edit this out, but um, I want to make one point and maybe be like the token fiscal conservative, um, but those numbers don't make sense. 200,000 being 2%. Like there's no way that's right. Are you sure it was 20,000? Sorry. No, actually, you know what I did? I conflated, sorry, I conflated two things. I will clarify that. So the federal department said that they're estimating because of the open nature of CERB 2 to uh, 3%. Like it's, they're expecting a higher fraud, which I think is reasonable, a higher fraud rate because of just the ease of access, the publicity of the program, how so they are expecting a higher fraud rate than that would be typical for a government program. And on another paragraph, they said that there had been 200,000 sort of red flag cases where they pushed through. Yes. And the federal government has actually also clarified that um, a lot of these red flag cases are EI like people who are on EI or something like that, where they think it might've just been a mistake. And they've sort of said like, no, no, the intent here is not to go. We just kind of want the money back. We, we're not going to like introduce the punitive measures on those people. So maybe I guess my only response to your point, uh, Chris, and maybe just more broadly would be, and I'm like putting on my hat as a former official who ran the student assistance program. And so would like adjudicate some cases of fraud is there's a difference between putting like administrative penalties into an act that the government itself can administer for fraud related to the program and calling the police on somebody for committing fraud, which mm. requires the police to do their own investigation and then like try, like try to um, lay criminal charges. And so I just like want to differentiate those two things, which is the bar for government to say, give a fine is not mm-hmm. the same as like criminal fraud, if I'm making sense. And I think the other thing I would say, you know, jail time and things like that is those are typically used in egregious examples where somebody is, you know, setting up multiple accounts, uh, intentionally setting up like a fraudulent claim. And those are very rare, but do happen in like benefit programs. So you know, I think those are typical penalties that get added to a bill like that, never with the intention of having it apply to more than, you know, a handful of cases. Um, but I think it's kind of unfortunate the way the discourse kind of used it, if I'm making sense. Yeah, yeah, no. And I mean, like, I, I also unfortunate that like, a lot of people are going to see like, jail time, CERB, and be scared about applying for the next round um yeah fair enough there's no easy answers i guess i just wanted like there's there's some context that i think gets missed yes. in some of the discourse oh absolutely and yeah the, the the you know like does the the government setting itself up for like a do they have to like want to call the police every single time that you know they think that somebody has gotten aid inappropriately, like, you know, administrative penalties. I think that's really important. And Sam, you must have experienced this too, that we experienced the social assistance, which is that you, it's easy to say, you know, there's this kind of thing, which is a mistake, but we're going after these people, which is real fraud. And in many cases that go to tribunal, it, 
it's sort of in the eye of the beholder and you can have a lot of room for interpretation about somebody's real intentions around some of the tougher cases. So it's much less cut and dry than, than it might yeah, seem. Yeah, totally. Very fair. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and I think on the last um, pod or two, a few pods ago on the healthcare, when we talked about like compassion fatigue and you totally saw it with frontline workers like adjudicating it, start to see fraud in every instance when it's just, yeah. you know, a mistake. And so the, it's, these are complicated things for sure. hundred yeah. percent also experienced that in MCSS. And I, I thought like, just to that point, it was so interesting that in the reporting on this issue, um, officials featured so prominently, like that was just like a interesting media thing. I thought like there were mm-hmm. like, I think it was like, like the, like the deputy and ADM and then some anonymous officials were in the media which is like and you know after that you heard justin trudeau talk about it um which i thought was a a weirdly interesting rollout that i think speaks to that hypothesis and that's all the time we have for today thank you so much for listening We had intended to talk today about Doug Ford's opposition to sick days, but actually ran out of time, so we will come back to that topic. Really, really like the discussion we got into uh, on some some of the administrative issues related to large benefit programs and some of the culture that can set in amongst the folks that administer those programs and how that can actually sometimes be harmful to program recipients. So uh, that's the thing I want to come back to as well. touched on it today but it would be great to get into it more fully uh next week we'll be back with an episode on intimate partner violence in ontario it's going to be wildly super important episode um that i'm really looking forward to um if not uh with a heavy heart because i think it's gonna be a heavy topic um if you have thoughts on what you heard today get at us on twitter at ontario loud you can email us at ontarioloudmail at gmail.com and we will get back to you. We love hearing your feedback. Ontario Loud is Green Tower Kapoor, Alexi White, Sam Mandry, Alan Tejo, and myself. I'm Chris Martin. We're supported by amazing volunteers, Naisha Anwar and Harlan Lundy. Thank you to everyone who supports us on Patreon. You can go to patreon.com slash ontarioloud or ontarioloud.ca and the Patreon link. That's all, folks. Have a good weekend and enjoy gathering in groups of more than five. What? What?